Last week we started our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon, the best sermon ever preached. And we started Matthew chapter 5 with this summary statement that we were created for a good life under the rule and the reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. See, Jesus' sermon isn't just a sermon full of vague platitudes or life wisdom that's sort of piecemealed together. This Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through Matthew chapter 7 is one cohesive message that maybe he even planned and developed to communicate this one idea that we were made for a good life under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. And we saw how that is upside down from what we think of in terms of worldly kingdoms, that the wisdom of God is usually backwards. It's usually countercultural from the kingdoms of this world. We saw the blessed life comes from the internal postures of being poor in spirit and taking sin seriously and being humble and then also hungering and thirsting after righteousness, a righteousness that's received, not a righteousness that's achieved we see how that's different from the world and those internal postures then produce external priorities in our lives that we are to be merciful that we're to be people who pursue purity people who pursue peace and people who live righteously even if it brings persecution and this lead then leads then to a new purpose in life a wholly new purpose in life that we would make a difference in this world living right side up in an upside down world, right? Just like salt to our food or a candle in a dark room, Jesus would say. All of this leads us to see that Jesus is giving us a way to reclaim the life we were created for. The Beatitudes, these blessings, they start the Sermon on the Mount as sort of a table of contents in a way that everything after Matthew chapter five verses one through 16 looks back to those first verses, sort of acts as a table of contents. The next paragraph we're gonna read this morning is kind of like an introduction where Jesus sets sort of the main thesis. And so we're gonna look at this together just in, before he drives home his point. So I want you to look with me, Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 17. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along with me in your copy of God's word or on the screen with us. Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if the Beatitudes weren't enough to make people's heads spin about the upside-down, countercultural, backwards reality of the kingdom of God, this statement Jesus makes is probably the most radical statement a person could make. 
especially in the first century, especially around a bunch of Jewish people. Now, if religious leaders were there on that hillside that day, they probably, maybe that's the moment they began to think, this guy's got to go. Yeah, I mean, this is such a radical statement. It would set him apart from everything they thought and believed up to that point. It would make him unique and distinct. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm God himself, when he says he fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. That just is sort of a generic way of saying the Old Testament. You know, what our Old Testament is would be all of the Jewish scriptures. So Jesus says there's... He's the fulfillment. There's a spectrum of kind of what he could mean by that. Uh, he could be hinting at the hundreds of prophecies that ultimately would be fulfilled in his life from his birth to his death to his resurrection, all from the Old Testament. He could, although, also be pointing to something a little more practical. And it's likely from the context here that he is talking about something a little more practical and right in front of him. It seems to be that Jesus is saying that his plan with his life, is to keep the law by perfect obedience, thus fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law, down to every crossed T and dotted I. Now, we're talking a 30-year-old man here. You maybe have been 30 before. I've been 30 before. By the time, in fact, by the time I was 33, I turned 33 as serving as a pastor here at the church, one of our media volunteers said, oh, 33, you know, Jesus was 33 when he died. What have you done with your life, you know? And I was like, oh, thanks. But as a 30-year-old, you're probably going, there's no way that I could ever claim that I'm righteous. But here's Jesus saying, I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. I came to completely, perfect, perfectly fulfill in obedience the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus is saying he's perfectly righteous. This is crazy talk to these Jewish people. Now, the Bible does affirm all the other ways in which Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Old Testament absolutely points to Jesus by prophecy, and Jesus does complete all the righteous requirements of the Old Testament. But why would Jesus emphasize this point of keeping the law with perfect righteousness? Why righteousness? Well, This whole sermon is about life in the kingdom of God. And from the Beatitudes all the way to the end, Jesus is making it clear that righteousness is the key. Righteousness is the key to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. What you'll see in verse 20 is that righteousness is the way to enter God's kingdom. Not just a righteousness that's casual, not even a righteousness that's intense like that of the Pharisees and scribes, but a righteousness that surpasses even that is what it requires to enter the kingdom of God. And then if you look in verse 19, it shows us that there's only one way to exist in the kingdom of God is by righteousness through this obedience and teaching. So we choose to live under God's rule and reign to enter the kingdom, but now we live in obedience And we teach what Jesus teaches in order to exist in the kingdom of God. And it's all centered on righteousness. So then the question becomes, how do we obtain true righteousness? I mean, here we are. None of us are perfect, right? I mean, surely Jesus should lower the bar for us, right? What does he expect? Well, at the time, the religious standard was the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Uh, it was not only how they acted, but also more, more so what they taught. Uh, Jesus' sermon kind of starts to take them to task beginning in verse 20. Uh, think of it this way. If you've been to a restaurant and seen um, a, a card on the front of, especially in Harrison County, they're required to post these cards with these big giant letters. It's a health inspector record, report. There's a health inspector that goes and makes sure that restaurants are in compliance with all the health codes. And if they're not in compliance in any way that affects their grade, they literally get a grade that's posted on the front of their restaurant. And then sometimes when a lower grade happens, then it's like social media firestorm and nobody goes, goes to that restaurant for a while. Well, here's the deal. If the Pharisees were a restaurant, they would have an A every single time, like A++. How does that happen? Well, number one, because they were intense about keeping the law but number two they literally wrote the book they're writing the code that they're attempting to be in compliance with and these guys would have proudly displayed their a plus rating right and then even jews would have respected them for it but jesus comes in and says the way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to have a rating that's even better than that of the Pharisees. How does this happen? How can a person be in more compliance than the Pharisees? Therein lies the problem. These guys had literally written the code that had been adjacent to the scripture. The scribes and the Pharisees, their life purpose was to live according to the law. Sometimes the letter of the law was crystal clear. Do not murder, right? Got that one down pat, okay? Sometimes it was a little more vague and they would attempt in order to make the law achievable and measurable, they would add sometimes hundreds of qualifications and guidelines to the law of the Old Testament in order to make sure that that law was adhered to. But Jesus steps in and he says to the Pharisees, you know, it's not them. It's not the ones who wrote all this extra stuff to try to help people measure where they are against the law and are they righteous and if they can accomplish all this, they will be righteous. It's not that at all. Instead, Jesus is saying, I am the authority. I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scripture. And it turns out as compliant as the scribes and Pharisees were, they were still missing the mark. The act of changing as Jesus would say not one letter or even stroke of a letter will pass away until all has been fulfilled the Pharisees were literally adding to the law they were changing the law thus as Jesus would say making it void of its original meaning verse 18 Jesus warns about this look at with with uh, me to verse 18 he says, anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will not be able to get into the kingdom of heaven. They'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now this warning from Jesus actually could be translated in a slightly different way and one that I think maybe communicates what's happening a little bit better. Think of it this way. If Jesus would have said, whoever lessens or cheapens one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I like that translation a little bit better. It's a little more literal to the word Jesus used that we translate breaks in our translation, but think of it to read this way. Whoever lessens a command to even the least of the command 
will then be called the least in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is setting up that these religious leaders were guilty of exactly that. That the ones who everybody highly esteemed were actually cheapening the law of God with extra rules to give the appearance of righteousness. Looking back at the first four Beatitudes, these Pharisees, these scribes, these were the antitypes of what Jesus said is the blessed life. They weren't poor in spirit. They trusted in their own ability to observe the law or what their definition of it was. They didn't mourn over sin. They acted as if they were above it. They didn't act humbly, but instead prideful in their position and in their power. They didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Instead, they were just kind of smug in their compliance with what appeared to be righteous. So what's Jesus getting at here? He's getting at this. There is more to life in the kingdom of God than outward compliance with rules. And then Jesus gives three pairs of examples, verses 21 through 47, that go back to the heart of the Old Testament scripture, proving that he is the true authority, the fulfillment of all the scriptures. And what he's doing by going to these examples is he's going to show the contrast between religion and the greater righteousness that he wants to produce in us. Because verse 20 makes it clear that we need a righteousness that's even greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we get it? Well, we're gonna look at each of these pairs of examples from verses 21 to 47. I'll just give you you a warning here. We could spend days and weeks taking each of these examples and using them as a launch pad to do a deep dive into biblical morality. That's possible. And the scriptures throughout speak to each of these examples in great detail. However, what I want to do is just put each pair of examples into a bigger category that just shows the single point Jesus is trying to make for us. So as we read, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to a couple of phrases that are going to be important. As Jesus speaks, he says, first, you have heard. You have heard. And what he's intending to say is you've heard the Pharisees and the scribes say these things. You've heard the teachers of the law, rabbis even, communicate what might be in the Old Testament. That's important because they haven't read it usually for themselves. They've just been to synagogue and they've heard it read or they've been with a rabbi and they've heard it said or they've been around a a Pharisee who says you shouldn't do that because. So they've just sort of heard. Jesus says you have heard and then he follows it up with every time but I say to you which he can do as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. He is the authority and so now he's saying but this is the real point. You heard it said this they're missing the mark. I'm going to show you the real true righteousness in each of these examples and each of these examples are elaborations on the last four beatitudes we saw how the pharisees were sort of the antitype of the first four now jesus is going to show us how the last four kind of play out in real life so the first big category which covers jesus's first two examples is our thoughts our thoughts so i want to read this for you beginning in verse 21 as you think about righteousness as related to your thoughts it says in verse 21 jesus says you've heard it said that uh, you've heard it said to our ancestors do not murder 
And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering a gift on the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now, this example is the first of two examples where most Jews would have been able, as we might be able, probably are able to say, that we can claim righteousness related to this command. Jesus says, most Jews probably could be able to claim righteousness. You've heard it said, don't murder. That seems really simple, right? Most of us would probably go, check, got it, next. But Jesus says, not so fast. That's not the end of the story. There's something deeper happening here. Righteousness is more than skin deep. What thoughts go through your mind when you're personally offended? Do you have any thoughts of anger? Do you have any thoughts of retaliation? Revenge? Jesus says the truly righteous person is bent on reconciliation. That even the thought of revenge or even the slightest insult toward another passing through our minds negates true righteousness. Anybody still got a check mark? Probably not. Verse 9 from the Beatitudes says, blessed are the peacemakers. So Jesus is expounding on that. He's elaborating on that. It's not just about not killing someone. It's about being the kind of person who doesn't even think toward other people negatively or out of personal offense in anger. Then he goes on to the next example. Verse 27 through 30. It says this. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now once again, this is difficult teaching. The sin of adultery begins long before the act of adultery. Jesus isn't telling us, by the way, to maim ourselves into obedience by gouging out our eyes and cutting off our hands, but rather he's proving a point. Even if you gouge out your eye, you recognize that you still have a mind that can recall those images and lust just as much as if you had a physical eye that led you to that point, right? So Jesus is saying that a truly righteous person is pure inside and out. Think back to verse 8 from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
He's just elaborating on this. And so in these two examples, we see it's not just our actions. It's not just can we prevent ourselves from murdering somebody. Can I prevent myself from being an adulterer? It's not that, but it's something that goes so much deeper, even into my mind, that Jesus cares about my thoughts when it comes to righteousness. That's a much higher standard than the Pharisees, is it not? Okay, so now we're getting there. And then he goes on to our next example, two examples about our words. Our words. Look at verse 31 and 37 with me. It says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we are going to move right into this next section, but I'm going to come back to that, okay? Verse 33. Again, you have heard it said, it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the great city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now, probably when we start talking about divorce, your radar went up, and, and that's okay. I totally understand that. Uh, you're likely drawn to the divorce part more than the oath part probably think from it comes to oaths like yeah I, I say what I mean I mean what I say I mean my kid my parents taught me that as a kid right but both of these are examples about the truly righteous person being a promise keeper not a promise breaker it's an elaboration on verse 8 again blessed are the pure in heart because as Jesus would also say out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks so what we say ought to be what we mean we ought to be promise keepers not promise breakers now here's why we are thinking about divorce eight out of ten people studies show are affected personally by divorce so whether you have been divorced or you have a, a parent who's been divorced or someone in your close immediate family who's been divorced so i recognize this is a sensitive issue it very well can. It can like stir things up and it can actually cause wounds to open. I totally understand that. Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce is hard teaching, but we, we got to hear it. We need to hear it. So I just want to like go into this section just a little bit more, okay? So here's what's happening. In verse 31, Jesus said, you heard it said. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, it is written. You remember other parts of the New Testament where Jesus says things like it is written and he's directly quoting the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures? Here he says you've heard it said and that's actually a great way to say it because what follows is not actually biblical. It's a twist of what's biblical. It's a misquote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so Jesus is saying there's something off here. And I want to correct it, specifically on the teaching of divorce. And so not to go too far into the question of the morality or allowances for divorce, but just to kind of touch on it as a way to say I recognize this is something we need to hear. What Jesus is saying 
is he's kind of attacking the rabbis and the Pharisees and those who have misquoted and misattributed Deuteronomy chapter 24. They took it to mean that the law commanded divorce in certain situations. And then these people would teach that there were certain liberties that a person could choose to allow for divorce. So even extreme liberties in some situations. Uh, the, the Bible in Deuteronomy 24 says that if a woman is indecent, they can, a man can give her a certificate of divorce. Now what does that mean? Well, like we said, changing the letter of the law, adding some things, even to tick mark to the least of these commands. There were hundreds of scenarios that rabbis and Pharisees taught related to that passage to explain what indecent was. Well, how would they know what God intended what indecent was when none of them necessarily agreed? In fact, one famous rabbi went as far as to say that an indecent act action for a, from a wife to a husband would be to serve him a burned dinner. And that is grounds for divorce. Jesus is saying, you've taken it too far. You've misapplied it. You've misinterpreted it, okay? There's something deeper that's going on here, right? Not only do these actions of adding to the law or changing it or twisting it cheapen the covenant of marriage, it also cheapened and confused teaching on divorce. Now, the Bible does allow for divorce. I mean, obviously, this is what this passage in the Old Testament is saying, and I just want to give you three reasons that the Bible allows for divorce uh, in extreme circumstances. Number one is unrepentant adultery. Unrepentant adultery. Number two is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And number three is abuse. Now, abuse isn't the one that's explicit in the scripture, but that's pretty much number two, repeated in a different way. So three reasons that divorce might be allowable in, the, in biblical morality. Unrepentant adultery by one spouse, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. If they're not a follower of Jesus and they leave you because of Jesus, that's an okay reason, okay? Uh, and then abuse, which is never okay. So uh, this is what the Bible says. But ultimately in these verses, Jesus is not just saying don't get divorced. Remember the whole point of this thing is pointing out that we need a righteousness that surpasses even the righteousness of the Pharisees. So he's not just saying, don't get divorced. He's saying the requirement of righteousness is with our words to be a truth teller and a promise keeper in every area of our lives, whether it's our marriages or our parenting or our business or our friendships or whatever it is, true righteousness looks like truth telling and promise keeping. The words that come out of your mouth matter. That's what Jesus is getting at. So now we've seen that our thoughts matter for true righteousness, our words matter for true righteousness. And the last category maybe is like yelling at you right now. The, the last category is our deeds. Our deeds, the final two examples. How do our deeds reflect true righteousness? Well, look with me at verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Another way to say that could be don't retaliate against an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. 
Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he, curses, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only the brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Our deeds. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can get even or you can get ahead. This is what Jesus is addressing. Jesus says there's a third way. There's a, a greater righteousness that the truly righteous person is not exempt from conflict, is not even exempt from coercion as the case of the Roman soldiers who were allowed by law to require a Jewish citizen to carry their pack, their gear for one mile. Jesus says, don't just go one, go two miles. By the way, it's where Chick-fil-A gets their whole concept of what they call second mile service. So next time you know someone's, you're at Chick-fil-A and someone says, my pleasure, and they go the extra mile, they get you the extra sauce, they're using that verse from Matthew 5 to teach their employees about second mile service, what they call it. Well, Jesus is saying it's not about retaliating. It's not about even uh, facing, repaying someone for coercing you into something. He's saying go farther. It's not about even enduring difficult circumstances. The righteous person is not exempt from difficult circumstances, but instead of seeking revenge, uh, that the truly righteous person won't repay evil for evil, but responds with love. And blessing that we are givers more than we are takers it's about how we live in the world it's about what people see from us in our actions in our deeds this is an elaboration of verse 7 and verse 10 from the beatitudes when jesus says blessed are those who are merciful blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness this is what jesus is talking about so we've seen in anger and in adultery, that our thoughts matter when it comes to true righteousness. We've seen through divorce and oath-keeping that our words matter when it comes to true righteousness. And now we see in this whole concept of moving from retaliation to love, we see our deeds matter when it comes to true righteousness. And Jesus is making one central point. The kingdom of God requires a holistic righteousness. A righteousness which permeates our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. A greater righteousness. But guess what? It's greater than we can produce on our own. Not a person on this planet can look at the requirements of God's law as taught by Jesus, which cover the scope of our whole selves, thoughts, words, and deeds and honestly claim true righteousness. That's why verse 48 seems like such a nail in the coffin to end this chapter. Look at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you feel inadequate now? Do you feel like you can't measure up do you recognize where you fall short? Good. Good. Because you are right where Jesus wants you to be. 
Do you remember verse three, the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Remember we're talking about entering and existing in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who realize they don't bring anything to the table, who realize they cannot be righteous in and of themselves that will never measure up. So we need a righteousness outside of ourselves that can revolutionize our entire selves. That's why when Jesus summed up the law, Matthew 22, he would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It all matters. Your whole being has got to be made righteous. And the answer to a righteousness outside of ourselves is right in front of us in last week's sermon and this week's sermon. It's right here. Go back to verse six. It's sort of this penultimate beatitude where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they will be filled. Not that they will earn it. Not that they will work their way there eventually. But just that they will want it long for it, crave it, and what'll happen? They will be filled. Not that they'll fill themselves, they will be filled. It's passive. It's something that happens to them from the outside in so that they can be changed from the inside out. This is what Jesus is talking about. And then we see in verse 17 where we first started how Jesus says, righteousness, those who hunger and thirst, they'll be filled. Guess what? Jesus says, I came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. This is the good news. That we are offered through faith in Jesus Christ a righteousness not of ourselves so that we can live this good life. The life we were created for under the rule and reign of a good God as partners in his kingdom. Righteousness is the key, and Jesus is the only way. A lot of verses in the greatest sermon ever preached really all point to one central idea. We need Jesus. That's it. I want to just draw your attention back to verse 1, chapter 5. If you've got your Bible open, you can look at it with me, but there's two groups of people there. I mentioned them last week as well. There's the crowd who comes, follows Jesus up the hill, is sort of on the outskirts, and then there's the group of people who sit closest to him, his disciples. And when his disciples came to him, then he began to teach them. And the call is this, that if you're in the crowd, Jesus wants to see you move into being a disciple. You might have an affinity for Jesus. You might like church. You may have grown up in church. There may be all kinds of reasons that you're here today. But what Jesus is saying is I want you to move from the crowd close to me as a disciple, as a follower, so that now I can begin to change you with this righteousness from the outside to change you from the inside out. This is the call of the Sermon on the Mount so that we can participate in God's kingdom both here and forever. This is what Jesus is talking about. So to illustrate this last point, I just want to point your attention to John chapter 6. There was another crowd. 
another crowd who came to Jesus after a miracle and said, hey, how can we experience what you're telling us about? How do we get there? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, speaking of himself, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Jesus is righteous. God has approved Jesus as righteous. And as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be tempted to work for it. But Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes, work for food that lasts for eternal life, which only can come by a gift of Jesus Christ himself. Because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. They asked, what can we do? And we do that all the time, right? Well, just tell me what to do, right? Is there something I can do? Can you just, you know, tell me where to go? Tell me what to say. Tell me how to act. Tell me, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be filled. Jesus will give you a righteousness that is greater than yourselves. It's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is is sufficient for life in the kingdom of God. That's how to get in and that's how to exist is through his righteousness. It's only obtained by faith. I wanna ask today, do you need to take that step to put faith in Jesus Christ to have a righteousness from outside yourself come in so that you can be changed from the inside out. Would you pray with me? And then I'll give you a next step. God, thank you for this opportunity to see the truth, the words of Jesus. I pray the truth would resonate in our hearts. For those that believe, God, would we believe in a greater measure that we cannot achieve righteousness, but it is a gift of God a gift given to us freely by Jesus. Lord, for those who need to take that step of belief, would you give them courage today? Courage to be poor in spirit, to be willing to say, I'm not good enough, I need some help. And God, would you bless them today in their faith with righteousness for eternal life. I am just so in awe, God, that you would take Jesus' righteousness and apply it to my account so that I would not have to pay the debt of my sin. I want everybody to understand that, God. Would you speak to people's hearts today and call people to repentance and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.